Now, my apologies to those of you who were blindsided by the sermon text today. I tried to warn you. Those of you who are in the city received a, a warning this week so that you could prepare. Because today, in Genesis 38, we have, according to Sidney Greedness, the most sexually explicit narrative in the entire book of Genesis. That's where we are today, as you heard in chapter 38. It is a surprising interruption to the story of Joseph. Last 14 chapters, uh, save this one, are all about Joseph. And so this is a surprising chapter-long interruption into that story. And we've been sort of left on the edge of our seat at the end of chapter 37 as Joseph is sold into slavery. And so we're left wondering what's going to happen with Joseph, what's going to become of him enslaved in Egypt. And so Moses, the author on purpose, interrupts that and leaves that tension there and uh, introduces us today to Joseph's uh, big bad brother Judah. So let's pray and we'll talk about Judah today. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for all of your words and we know that all of your words are from you and that it's all useful and helpful. It's all good for us. It's good for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And we may be tempted to rush through chapters like this one, maybe wondering what could possibly be fruitful for us here. What could we possibly glean from this? So remind us again that every word you give us is from you and it is for our good. We thank you for this day that you've made. We thank you for the sun that was shining us on us on our way to worship today. We thank you for giving us um, a comfortable and warm place to, to meet with you today. We thank you for all the friendly faces that are here and all of the relationships and family that is represented in this room. Thank you for how good you've been to us. Yeah, we thank you for those who are visiting or who are new to us. And while there's many things that we hope that they would find today, including love and friendship and hospitality and kindness and warmth. But God, we would pray most, most ardently that what they would experience today is You. And that they would have a time here this morning where they could worship You um, fully and that you would meet with them and and change them and they would come to know you more deeply we love you and we're thankful for this book of genesis thank you for inspiring moses to write it and we thank you for chapter 38 in jesus name we pray amen so this chapter as you can you can already tell this is about judah's family it's going to cover a span of over 20 years in the life of Judah, who is one of Joseph's older brothers. This chapter begins, you'll see, with the birth of three of Judah's sons to his wife, and it ends with the birth of two of his sons to his daughter-in-law. So the bookends of this chapter are the, the births of Judah's children, specifically his sons. And what we have is a lot of sexual impropriety is one way to put it. We're going to find a lot of that in in chapter 38. And the sexual impropriety of this chapter serves to sharpen the focus of the moral purity of Joseph in the next chapter. So we're not going to be able today to roll right into chapter 39, but if you'll hang on to what you're going to hear today. And if you'll, you'll hang on to the perversion and the immorality that you're going to see from Judah's family here, 
What that does is it provides a backdrop. This is a, a, a literary technique that Moses is using. Part of what he's doing is to give you a backdrop to highlight the moral purity of Joseph to remind you of that story when he's in Potiphar's household and he's dealing with Potiphar's obnoxious wife. So we'll read that next week, but that's one of the things that's happening here. The, the perversion that you read here is supposed to be a backdrop, a contrast to highlight the purity that we're going to see in Joseph's life next week. There's some similarities. Uh, both brothers, Judah this week and Joseph next, will associate with foreign women, but very differently. They'll associate with them very differently. One is a victimizer. That's today. It's Judah. One is a victimizer and receives judgment from God while the other is victimized and receives blessing from God. That's what we'll find with Joseph next week. So, let's meet Judah's family in the first 11 verses. As usual, the first 11 verses are, are providing the setting. It's setting the stage for the real plot line, which is going to be in verses 12 and following. But let's meet Judah, chapter 38, verse one, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and he turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So Judah is at this point, he is a calloused and hard-hearted man. He's not a godly man. Judah is sort of like the nominal Christian who grew up in church, but now he's grown up and he's disconnected from Jesus and he's disconnected from the family of, of Jesus. So he's like a nominal Christian in, in name only. He grew up with some heritage, but he's far from that now. Now here's why we know that. He shows uh, no signs of regret or remorse for selling his little brother into slavery. He's just going along with his life, you know, business as usual. But he has just been in, involved in a travesty, right? Not only was he complicit in the selling of his little brother Joseph into slavery, he actually conceived the plan, Judah did. It was his idea. He said, listen, we want to get rid of our brother, and they were all set to kill him. He said, but why not make a profit? Why not kill two birds with one stone? Why not get rid of our brother and make some money? And so he convinced his brothers to, hey, here come some Egyptian uh, slave traders. Why don't we, we sell Joseph? So he did that. He sort of pioneers that plan and and then they go home and Judah was involved in deceiving his father and lying to Jacob about what really happened to Joseph. So it's one thing to to sell your brother into slavery. It's another thing to profit from selling your brother into slavery. It's another thing to then come home and and deceive your dad and lie to him about what happened to your brother. And then it's another thing and Judah did this to then comfort their dad. But some of you, when you read that, found that particularly offensive. So he sells his brother. He makes some money off of it. He lies to his dad about it. And then when his dad is devastated, right, lifetime of sorrow ahead of him because he's lost his favorite son, Joseph, then all the brothers, including Judah, come around and comfort dad. Which rings truth to Proverbs 12.10 which says the mercy of the wicked is cruel. The mercy of the wicked is cruel. This is, this is cruel mercy from the wicked. It's disingenuous. It's all lies. It's not truly merciful. It's a manipulative mercy. So this is what Judah's done. And now for the first 25 verses of this chapter, Judah's just moving on with his life. He's building a family. He's buying a home. He's settling down. He's starting up a business, and he's just going along with life as usual. No regret. No remorse. As well, it says that 
he went down from his brothers and he, he turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. What we're going to find out is that he's going down and he's leaving the promised land. He's leaving the promised family. He's going to go pitch his tent as many have done before him among God's enemies. So Joseph went down. We read, but Joseph went down because it was against his will and his brothers had sold him. But Judah is different. Judah goes down, but on his own accord. He's happy to desert his family. He's happy to desert God's will and God's plan. This isn't leaving and cleaving. Leaving and cleaving is a good thing. This is deserting and abandoning his godly family because he doesn't want to have anything to do with them. So we're going to see. We're not surprised. It doesn't go well. Verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son. And she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. So the first thing we read there in verse 2, it may seem insignificant to us. Judah married a Canaanite woman. Had God forbidden this? God had forbidden this. God had forbidden this among His people. He says there's God's people and there's not God's people. It's really simple. There's those who know Me and love Me. And there's those who don't know Me and don't love Me and don't love God. You're to marry others that love God and you're not to consider marrying those who are from these clans and tribes and communities that don't love God. It's the New Testament principle that Paul picks up. Do not be unequally yoked. This is folly. It's sinful. And it does not go well. So Judah doesn't care. He marries a Canaanite woman. His grandfather, Isaac, and his great-grandfather, Abraham, they understood and taught the importance of this principle to their family. Remember in Genesis 24 when Abraham sent his trusted servant to find a wife for his son Isaac? And he commanded him, he was emphatic to his trusted servant that he not take a wife for his son from among the Canaanites. Don't do that. My son needs a wife, but he doesn't need that kind of wife. Young men who are not married, I would say 99% of you, you need a wife desperately. Desperately need a wife. Desperately need help. But there is a kind of wife that you do not need. Amen. And there is a kind of woman that you do not need. And there may be a kind of woman that you are attracted to and you're certain you are soul mates. But she may not be good for you. This is the principle we see here. This was God's chosen line. This was God's chosen family through whom, remember, He planned to send His rescuer and they must not. God is not a racist. That's not what's going on here. There are, there are multiple ethnicities that are going to be represented and even grafted into God's people. That's not what's at stake here. What God is telling the men in His family is do not marry women who are obligated to foreign and false gods. That's the principle. So don't do that. Don't intermingle. Judah knows this. Judah knew God's Word. And he knows God's plan to bring a promised rescuer through his family line. But he is not interested in God or God's plan. And some aren't. Some who claim to be Christians. Some who claim to be a part of God's people. When it comes down to it, really are not interested in God. And really are not interested in His plans. They're interested in their own plans. That's Judah. And he foolishly thinks he can opt out of God's plan. Now all of you are part of God's plan. 
every single one of you. You say, I'm not a Christian. That's fine. But you're a part of God's plan. You are. Now we may foolishly think, no thank you. No thanks. I've got my own plan. Well, many are the plans in men's hearts, but God's going to direct your steps. And He's going to accomplish all of His purposes and all of His plan. And you can always be assured when you pray, Thy will be done, that God 100% of the time answers, Okay. <laughs> you got it. You can pray that one with confidence. You've heard people say, when you pray, God always says yes, no, or maybe, or wait, or I don't know about all that. But you know if you pray, Lord, Your will be done, He says, you got it. You got it. Done. You can count on it. So, here's Judah foolishly thinking, no thanks, don't want to be a part of your plan, God, so I'm going to ditch the promised land. I'm going to ditch the promised family. I'm going to get as far away from this as possible. I want to forget about what I've done. I want to get over this guilt. I don't want to deal with it. I'm my own man. I don't need anybody. I certainly don't need the God of my forefathers. And God says, well, you're not getting out of my plan. And so that's part of what we're going to see here is how God works His plan in an amazing and surprising way. Three boys He has. Three boys, just like Adam had three boys. Noah had three boys. Terah had three boys. I guess if you've got three boys, that's, that's pretty cool. Their names were Er, Onan, and Shelah. And then an interesting bit of information, he tells us his last son was born in a town called Chezib, which means town of lies. Which is sort of a funny place to settle down and build a family, but that's what he's doing. Town of Lies. Verse 6. And Judah took a wife for heir as firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But heir, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. That's a big deal. We'll come back to that. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for her brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. That's significant. And we'll have to figure out what's going on there. Verse 10, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he, that's God, put him to death also. So there's no surprise here. Judah's boys don't love God. There's no surprise. This is like father, like son. He may have dropped him off at Sunday school every morning. I don't know. But like father, like son. This is what happens, dads. You're a wicked dad. You're going to have wicked kids. But, by the grace of God. Like father, like son. We see this over and over and over again in the Bible. Especially in the Old Testament, don't we? Here's a king and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then he had a son. And his son did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then what does the author put in there right after that? Just as his father did. What is it teaching us? It's teaching us fathers, mothers, be careful with your kids. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Because no one on this earth is going to have a greater impact on them than you are. And they're very likely to turn out just like you. And if that's bad, they will, but by the grace of God. Now bless God, we've got testimony after testimony in here, in here I'm sure, of those of you who by God's grace did not turn out like your parents in their wickedness. And we're going to have examples of that in this text today. But that does not get us out of the responsibility of handling our children well. So here's Judah. He's a wicked dad. He's taken his family away from God's people. He's like Lot before. He's pitched his tent near Sodom. His boys do not turn out well. In fact, his sons are so wicked that God starts picking them off. 
That's really bad. There, there is in the Bible, there is God using means and then there is direct divine intervention. There's God using means. God could have used means to take out Er and Onan. We could have read, Er was caught in a thunderstorm in the forest and a tree fell on him and he died. And we would all know that it was God's hand behind that because God commands the lightning where to strike, we're told. Nothing happens apart from His will. So there's God using means to accomplish His will. And then there's God's direct divine intervention. That's what this is. God does not outsource this hit. God kills him. God kills him. He kills Er. That's how wicked he was. We haven't read about this in the Bible since Sodom and Gomorrah. In Sodom and Gomorrah, this was groups of people, right? This was a a pair of cities. This is the first time that God has singled out and killed a man. So that's Er. We're also introduced to Tamar. Judah found a wife for his eldest son, Er. God kills Er, which is going to leave, and we're going to read how that goes. It's going to leave Tamar as a widow. Her name means palm tree. Her name means palm tree, which is probably a song of Solomon 7. 7 does. It is to, when you hear her name, you were to think of physical beauty. Specifically, a, a, a beautiful figure. And apparently, Tamar was a beautiful woman. Evidently, she was very beautiful because she will be, unfortunately, we'll see, she will be used several times by men in her family for their own personal gratification. So Tamar's a a lovely young woman. And she is the closest we have to a hero in this chapter. Tamar is the closest we have to a hero in this chapter. Some commentators take a really strong position on this and say this is a godly, faithful woman in the middle of a family that has turned from God. Now it is very significant. She is one of only three women who are named in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. That's a who's who list. And it was very uncommon even in that day to even include the name of any woman in a genealogy. Some would consider it inappropriate. What you're looking at is the man and you're seeing how the family line has been traced through the side of the man and the woman was seen as relatively in many cultures as sort of insignificant. So we're surprised when we read in Matthew 1 the genealogy of Jesus and we see these women named. One of them is Tamar. So she is significant. Now as well, we're introduced to a custom here in the Bible that later becomes a law in Israel called leverate marriage from the Latin word lever, which meant brother-in-law. And this is what happens after Tamar loses her husband, heir, and then Judah makes a request of his next son, Onan, in terms of his relationship with the now-widowed Tamar. So this was a common uh, Near Eastern custom of the day. And it actually later became a law in Israel um, imposed by God. So let me, let me read you what this becomes in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5-6. through six. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife. That's important. And take her as his wife and perform the duty 
of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So once we get past all of the, 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 the knee-jerk sort of ew reactions that we might have as 21st century Americans, we see that this was a law that God put in place to, to protect the widow and to preserve the family line. And preserving this family line is very important because God is going to send the promised rescuer through this family line. So this was the law. If you have a man and he's married to a woman and they have no children, they have no sons, and the man dies before he can pass on his seed, before the child can be passed on, before his family line can go on, and you have, this is what's supposed to happen, and he has a brother who is not yet married, he was supposed to marry his brother's widow, and start a family with her so that she would not be destitute, but she would be provided for, and as well, the family line could still be preserved. And then the first boy that was born would actually in the family take the place of the father-to-be who had died, the first husband. And then subsequent children would fall in the family order and in the family line. So it was a law that was passed to to protect a widow from destitution. And it was there to preserve the family line. Okay, We see this presented in a much more palatable way for us in the book of Ruth. This is what's happening with Ruth, who is a widow, who wants to marry Boaz. And then in chapter 4, Boaz says, well, I'm not sure that I'm qualified to marry you because you have a kinsman redeemer. That's what this is talking about. You have someone who's more closely related to you in your family. It would be more appropriate for him to marry you and to continue on the family line. But if he says no, I'm happy to marry you. And that guy says no, I don't really want to have anything to do with her. And Boaz, we love Boaz. Also, in that genealogy, Ruth also, another one of those three gals in the genealogy of Jesus. And so Boaz becomes Ruth's king kinsman, redeemer, marries her, protects her, provides for her. One of the greatest love stories in your Bible. Well, it's liberate marriage. It's the same thing. That's what's taking place. But a couple observations that we see how far Judah and his family have fallen. Number one, Judah does not ask Onan to marry Tamar, does he? He asks him to sleep with her until she gets pregnant. It's different. It's not godly. It does not honor God. Second, what does Onan do? Onan employs primitive birth control. That's what this is. This is just primitive birth control. One of the very first and earliest forms of birth control to avoid conception. So that's what Onan does. He employs primitive birth control so as to I wrote this down because I want to be very clear in how we understand this and the wickedness of it. Because you're like, God's going to kill him after this. So this is what he's doing. He's using primitive birth control so as to gratify himself with beautiful Tamar without incurring the responsibility of fatherhood or replacing himself as heir to the family. That's what he's doing. And actually, when you read the original Hebrew, it's making a point to say that he does this over and over and over and over again. This is his recurring practice. That he goes selfishly to satisfy his own pleasure with the widow of his dead brother and sleeps with her over and over and over again, and yet uses birth control to try to control so that he doesn't have to be a father. And so that a child isn't born that would actually replace him, wouldn't he? Because a child would replace his brother. And as it stands now, Onan would be the heir 
of double portion of dad's inheritance. And so selfishly, he uses this widow for himself. Now God takes that pretty seriously. That's what we read. Now we could develop a whole sermon off of these few verses. We're not going to. But we could. And we could talk about the responsibility of men. And the responsibility of fatherhood. And how seriously God takes it. So how does God respond? He puts Onan to death. This family is dropping like flies. Two dead brothers. Why? Because they're wicked. They're wicked. They're disobeying God. Judah is oblivious to this. Verse 12. How does Judah respond? Verse 12, or verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter in law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah is clueless to the wickedness in his family and God's judgment. Why does he think that his boys are dying? Tamar. He's superstitious. I'm not letting my third boy get next to her. Anyone who sleeps with her dies. That's what he thinks. Thinks she's poison. So what does he do? And it's terrible what he does. He abandons her. And he kicks her out of his family. Where does he send her? He says, go back to your dad's house. But she doesn't belong to her dad anymore. It appears maybe that she's got a gracious father and a gracious family that takes her back. But this was total abandonment. You're not my problem. You're not my problem. So he ships her back to her dad to live there. Judah's like his boys. His boys are like Judah. Pawns are off. So, there the stage is set. That's wicked Judah and that's his wicked family. It's pretty bad, right? It's a wicked family. He's left the promised family. He's left the promised land. God is picking off His sons due to their wickedness. So this is a man who has fallen very far. So that prompts a question. Will God still be able to use him? Well, that's a silly question. We should know by now. That's a really silly question. Has he fallen so far that God will not be able to use him Of course God will be able to use him. Of course He will. Friends, nothing goes well without providential intervention. Nothing goes well. We mustn't think that the things that have gone well in our lives have gone well because we did a good job. Maybe you did a good job. But ultimately, you did a good job because of God's favor. Because of God's help. Nothing goes well without providential intervention. Okay, Judah and his family are no exception to that. It will not go well. Clearly, the stage is set unless God intervenes. Remember? We just talked about this last week. God uses the evil deeds, even the evil deeds of human beings to accomplish His purposes. To accomplish His will. We see that. Well, That theme is being carried on here into chapter 38. So Moses, the author, he set the stage for the, the, the main plot. Okay, Because the first 11 verses that we just read, that covers probably over 20 years. Those 11 verses cover over 20 years. And these next 19 verses are going to cover less than a year. Okay, so he's going to get much more detailed about this. Here is the, the, the main plot. First, we're going to read here about Tamar trapping Judah. Are you still surprised at how much deception happens among God's people? I mean, no one, it seems like no one tells the truth. 
You need to be on your guard if you're in this family. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So everyone's a widow or a widower in this family. When Ju- so this is dad. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. He and his friend Hira the Adulamite. So he's going up with his old buddy that we met in verse 1. Okay, and it's sheep shearing time. I'm sure that's very significant to many of you. Sheep shearing time was a big deal in this culture. Really big deal. Sheep shearing was a festive time among the Canaanites. Uh, you had long days of sheep shearing, uh, followed by long nights of partying, basically. That's what this would look like. It was a festive time. So you'd have long, hard days of, of hard work, dirty work, and they would reward themselves with long nights of partying. Prostitution was rampant, and so sexual temptation was heightened. Derek Kidner said, in fact, the Canaanites would encourage ritual fornication as fertility magic. So yes, this was one of those cultures where fornication was actually encouraged as a form of worship. As a form of worship. And so you would have what were called cult prostitutes. And these were women that you were to go to bed with and with all the other pleasures that may entice a man into doing that, he was also affirmed that in doing that, he was worshiping God and loving and honoring and glorifying God. Okay, so this is taking place at sheep shearing time. Again, these are the people and the practices that Judah has foolishly and disobediently married himself into. There's that theme over and over and over again. Be careful who you unite yourself with. Verse 13, And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and she sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. What every girl wants. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? This is really interesting how this is playing out because this is a a man who has withheld from her what he's supposed to give her. She's caught wind of that, right? She knows, well, Shayla's all grown up. He promised that he would give his third son to me so that I'd be provided for and the family line would be preserved. But Shayla's all grown up, so she's on to Judah's deception. He's withholding from her what he's supposed to give her. And now he's asking her over and over again, unknowingly, what can I give you? What can I give you? What can I give you? And she takes full advantage of the situation. She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Wow. What a sneaky girl. Takes off her widow clothes. Goes down, spends some time with her father-in-law. Puts her widow clothes back on. And goes back home. So once Tamar realizes that she's been deceived by Judah, it's verse 14, she realizes that she's been deceived by Judah, she takes charge. Have you heard of this happening before? In your Bible, in the book of Genesis? Where a woman takes charge 
takes matters into her own hands because the men around her are abdicating their responsibilities. There's another example of it right here. Judah is not doing what Judah is supposed to be doing. Judah is not doing what he said he was going to do. And so Tamar takes matters into her own hands. Now husbands, you know this, those of you who are married. If, if you abdicate your responsibility, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, do you not know this? She will take action. She will take action. Every time a husband doesn't fulfill his responsibilities to lead his family, he puts his wife in a tremendously tempting position where he tempts her to usurp his God-given authority to take matters into her own hands. And sometimes wives will do that sinfully or not sinfully. There's debate as to whether or not amongst the historians and commentators as to what Tamar does. How sinful is it really? Sometimes a wife will take matters into her own hands and she is doing what is best and godly for her family and we would applaud her for taking responsibility when her husband does not. She's got to do what's best for her family. She has children She has children she needs to love. That she needs to protect. God forbid that ever means that she has to get between her children and her husband. But Mama Bear is ready to do that. She's ready to do that if she needs to. But a woman may also be tempted to take this to sinful measures. To dishonor. To disrespect. To shame a sinful man. Well, this is what's happening in this family. Tamar's like, I'm, I've got no one. I'm, I'm destitute. Promises are not being fulfilled. And the fact that she shows up in the genealogy of Jesus may just hint to the fact that she, unlike anyone else in this family, Israel right now, is interested in its legacy. She's the only one, it seems, that is concerned with the family line of this rescuer line continuing. And she's going to make sure that Judah has his heir. So she takes matters into her own hands. Bruce Waltke, a very respected theologian and commentator, says it this strongly. Tamar remains true to her Israelite family in spite of its glaring failures and becomes absorbed into it. Normally, Canaanite women absorb Israelite men into their debased culture. In that light, her deception as a Canaanite prostitute to snare her widowed father-in-law into fathering covenant seed should be evaluated as a daring act of faith. Now, I don't know about that. (laughs) But she is presented. She is presented as a woman who is interested in obeying God. She's interested in the things of God. She's in a family that's supposed to be interested in the things of God. And no one is. I think that's why she ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. Alongside, do you remember who else? Ruth and Rahab. Definite, definite heroes in our Bible. Let's keep reading. This gets a little funny, I think. I think there's some humor here. Verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat. She doesn't care about the goat, does she? She got what she wanted. She got what she wanted. A child. Thank you very much. Keep your goat. (laughs) This is kind of funny. Judah's got no idea. When Judah sent the young goat 
by his friend, the Adulamite. This is his wingman, right? Are you here? This guy just goes with him everywhere, follows him in trouble, covers his tracks. To take the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. Uh-oh. This is a huge uh-oh moment for Judah. What's going on here? He is. Do you remember what happened? Do you understand the, the pledge? She said, okay, you give me a goat. He's like, well, I don't have a goat on me right now. <laughs> right? No goat. So I'm going to have to send you my goat. And so he keeps asking, so what can I give you? I really want to sleep with you. So what can I give you as a pledge, as collateral? You know, what can you hold on to as a down payment so that you'll trust that I'm going to send the goat? And do you remember what she asks for? She asks for everything. Your signet, your, your sign, your staff, your cord. This is like, I, I want your monogrammed boxer shorts. <laughs> this is what I want. I want undeniable proof. You see what she's doing? So when this act is over, she doesn't stick around. She leaves with the child and the monogrammed boxer shorts. And Judah can't find her. He asked the men of the place, verse 21, uh, where's the cult prostitute who was at Enim at the roadside? And they said, uh, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. Oh. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Oh no. Right, this is modern day. This is the equivalent of a politician sending an inappropriate text. That's what this is. And this is, we need to just sweep this under the carpet. We need to forget about this and hope that this doesn't come up because it will bring great shame and embarrassment will be a laughing stock, he says. Verse 24, the plot thickens. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And here it is sad again, we see the character of Judah because Judah, who has taken no interest in this girl, all of a sudden takes interest in her now. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. He's an opportunist. He's finally got a way to get rid of her, doesn't he? Three months go by. She's starting to show. She's betrothed technically to his third son, Shera, who he is not giving to her. So they know there's been immorality. And so he sees an opportunity to finally get Tamar behind him and dealt with. And how shrewd is Tamar? As she was being brought out. Listen to the timing of when she reveals her secret. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong. I am pregnant. And she said, please, identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Verse 26. Here's the transformation of Judah. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. Now, Judah, you've sinned grievously. But that heart is still ticking. There is still time to turn. There is still time to repent. And this is, we believe, the beginning of Judah's transformation. We won't see Judah again for a long time. But when we see Judah again, he's a very different man. Taking leadership and ownership. He's back with his family. 
taking leadership and ownership in his family. And he's very different from the man that we meet here in chapter 38. He says, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. That's confession. That's a repentance statement at least. And then the obedience to follow. He did not know her again. He did not ever take advantage of this woman again. He was caught. He was caught red-handed. And he owned up to it as he should. And then the final few verses here. Another wild account. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. So they, they know there's twins. They know she's got two babies. And so they need to be able to identify them so that they know which one was the firstborn because it was significant who was the firstborn. The firstborn would receive right, double inheritance. So we've got to know. So what does she do? Ties a, a red cord around his, around his wrist. But, this is weird. I don't even know this is possible. I didn't know it was possible. Verse 29. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said to the to technically the second born who's making his way out. What a breach you have made for yourself. Right? The midwife's impressed here. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Which means right? he made a, he made a way. He made a breach. He made a gap for himself. This, this boy fought to get out first. He's already competitive little boys here. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. The firstborn had a very significant place. It was important to identify who was firstborn. Uh, there's not a lot of, of infants in the Bible who draw special attention. Uh, and Perez is one of them. Very few infants in your Bible other, or, or just other, anything other than just being named. But there's actually some verses here that give special attention. That's a marker. That means that this is, this is an important man in history. In fact, Perez will be another example of God's surprising use of the child that is technically not the firstborn, just like Isaac and Jacob before. Perez shows up, guess where? In Matthew chapter 1. This baby, Perez, he shows up in Matthew chapter 1 with his father, Judah, and his mother, Tamar, in the genealogy of Jesus. Let me read those few verses from Matthew chapter 1 as we conclude with a couple thoughts. The first three verses of the genealogy of Jesus, we find three of the characters from Genesis 38. That's why Genesis 38 is so significant to us and gets a lot of attention from us. That's why we don't skip this chapter no matter how awkward it might be. Because you've got three characters here that are mentioned in the first three verses of the genealogy of Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And this is a surprising few to find in the genealogy of Jesus. These are surprising people to find in the genealogy. Do you know who's not in the genealogy of Jesus? Joseph. Joseph is going to be the main character the rest of our study of Genesis. 14 chapters devoted to the life of near perfect, no sin ever mentioned from him, Joseph. And yet, Joseph is not the next promised child. Friends, Jesus is not called the Lion of Joseph. Is He? Do you remember? He's called the Lion of 
Judah. This, chapter 38, in the middle of these glorious 14 chapters of amazing Joseph, in chapter 38, big bad Judah, hears Jesus' family. This is his family. This is his heritage. These are his people. So here's the theme of our chapter. And you could finish this sentence for me. God uses Tamar's deception to continue Judah's family line to eventuate in the birth of Christ. Why is this a significant account? Because without this account, no Jesus. This doesn't take place. No Jesus. This is his family line. Tamar's deception secured for Judah the honor of fathering both David and the Savior of the world. Think about it that way. Tamar's deception unknowingly gave Judah the privilege of fathering King David and the Savior of the world. This is Jesus' family. So, should we be surprised by the dysfunctionality of our own families? I suppose not, right? Should we be surprised by the failures of our own family? Those with us now, those who have gone before, should we be surprised to find those failures? Should we be surprised to find those shortcomings? Should we be surprised and arrogant toward those dysfunctionalities in our own family? This is the family of Jesus. This is here. This is here so that you will glorify God in His ability to draw straight with crooked lines. That's how Douglas Wilson puts it. We have a God who can draw straight with crooked lines. You see, you can't do that. You need straight lines to draw straight. Well, with God, anything is possible. Our God draws straight with crooked lines. What's the Scripture that says that? God works together for the good of those who love Him. God is able to accomplish all of His will and all of His purposes. And this story is here so that you will glorify God as you remember that not only has He done that, but He's doing that in your life, that in your life today, He's drawing straight with crooked lines. This is not here so that we will feel licensed to live however we want to live, because after all, it doesn't matter how crooked I am, God can still draw straight. <laughs> and I hope you're not thinking that that's the point here. Rather, this is here so that you and I will not be crippled. Because there's a temptation to be crippled when you see your own failures and you see the failures around you. The temptation is for that to be death blow and for that to cripple you. For that to throw your hands up in the air and to say, what's the point? Friends, the reality of the dysfunctionality even in the family of our Lord Jesus Christ is meant to motivate us to obedience. Thankfulness. I'm so thankful, God. How discouraging it would it be to read of perfect family after perfect family after perfect family. We don't even know how discouraging that would be. Because that's not our reality, is it? Friends, it was not their reality. But God is good and God is great. And He is able to use ugly, rotten, imperfect clay and to make the most beautiful pieces of art you could ever imagine. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we are so thankful that You are a God who is not only able to love us and to use us, but You are a God who is willing to. God, that You are not content to leave us as we are, but You're constantly changing us into what one day we will become.
You're making us more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for this account in Genesis 38. We thank you for the reminder of, of all of the unexpected people in your history. How you were able to do great things through ordinary people, through sinful people, through wicked people. God, we pray that you would continue to use us for your glory. And may we not be crippled by our own inadequacies, but may we be motivated to obey you more, to love you more, so that you would receive the most possible glory in us. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.